Welcome to Community Matters, a podcast from the Canadian Association of Community Health Centres. I'm your host, Hilary Leblanc. On this episode of the podcast, I am joined by Carlene Donnelly, Executive Director at Cups Calgary, a community health centre in Calgary, Alberta, that has been helping Calgarians overcome adversity since 1989 and has been named one of Canada's top 10 impact charities by Charity Influence for the past five consecutive years. We are also joined by Nicole Letourneau, Research Chair of Parent and Child Mental Health and Professor at University of Calgary, and has created the Attach Parenting Program being used at Cups Calgary. How are the two of you doing today? Great. Great. Wonderful. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Um, so we have had the pleasure of featuring Cups Calgary on the podcast before, discussing the work that you were able to do with the funding provided to you in partnership with PHAC through the CVP National Project. Um, can you remind listeners who maybe didn't hear that episode about your community health center, the programs you offer, and the clients and community that you serve? That's a question to me. So I'm having trouble. Yes, tell us about Cups. <laughs> sure. Um, Cups, this, we're celebrating actually, uh, we're way past the 30 year mark now and coming up to our 33rd year, but we're, we originally started out as community health center and I would say in many ways, looking at health and wellness from a broader lens uh, than just physical health is really exactly what we do and it's why partnerships with university and, and entities like Nicole are, are just so critical. And so we have education for both parents and children we have housing uh, programs, both uh, housing placements that we offer and in-home supports and market placements for a wide variety of, of clients and patients. Um, and then we have, of course, our health clinic that is including primary care, women's health, uh, mental health, and a whole host of specialty services. The focus of our work is for um, complex patients and individuals, and it's really around those that have uh, many barriers and including low income. Um, some are homeless, some are housed at risk, some are just struggling to uh, keep up in this economy. But all many, many of our participants that come in are also coming in with past uh, childhood experiences that are challenging. So uh, we are all brain story certified with the Palix Foundation, Alberta Family Wellness Initiative. And we really are very focused on not just trying to meet the immediate need people coming through our doors we we understand trauma has really been a very significant impact to homelessness and mental health issues and addiction issues and other social issues and so we not only want to meet that need and and adhere to the three principles that builds resiliency you know reduce that stress build supportive relationships and and develop core life skills so we do our work based on how do we you do stressed enough to do the other two principles. And that's really important that we do that in partnership uh, with evidence-based entities like Attach um, and others with the university. It's why I'm such a big uh, believer and supporter and believe that I too have to show up and be a partner in research and constantly learn based on what we know. And I truly believe that is both preventive and upstream thinking. And if we can do that and knowing how much way to come out of COVID we are with our social conditions and our social factors that are weighing down our healthcare and our education and our community. Um, we really have to get more minded and joined together to really be meeting that immediate stress, but planning in our care plans to be 
get upstream thinking and uh, be addressing that trauma. Amazing. Thank you so much for that great response. And I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I'm excited to hear more about Attach specifically. But before we get into Attach, I'd like to turn now to Nicole, um, co-founder of Attach. I believe that's like the, the right terminology, but please tell us a bit more about, about yourself and the work that you do with the University of Calgary. Yeah, sure. Um, and first I'll say how grateful I am to get to work with Carlene because wow, you just hearing you talk about the great work you've been doing at Cups and leading all these years. It's just really inspiring. It's you know wonderful to be able to connect with you here and, and just you know as a colleague in general. Um, but yeah, I, so I'm a professor at the University of Calgary in the Faculty of Nursing and Cummings School of Medicine. And I'm I've been really fortunate because I've been able to focus on research for my entire career. And so I've been interested in a lot of the things that Carlene's organization focuses on supporting parents, helping people when they've been traumatized, you know, either in their own childhood or currently, and, and just trying to help families overcome those stressors and, and traumas to provide the best environments for their kids to grow up in. So we talk about the toxic stressors, as they say, and my research has been largely focused on um, maternal depression, parental depression, um, family violence, and addictions, low income, those things that really undermine people's ability to, you know, be high functioning undermine children's abilities to, you know, meet their potential. And uh, yeah, Caroline's organization, you know, hits those targets every single day. So it's, you know, you could see why uh, I gravitated uh, toward Caroline and, and the work that she does. Um, in my research, I've been really interested in not just understanding how those things impact health and development of, you know, the adult or the child, um, but actually how we can intervene to promote better outcomes uh, for kids and families. And it's all about, uh, having an evidence base for the supports and services that you deliver. So much of what we do is well-intentioned, but we don't, um, we don't really get very systematic maybe about how we deliver a program or how we evaluate it. So it's really important to, to be really clear about what works and, uh, and keep delivering those programs, you know, contextualizing them for the family as, as they present, definitely. But so a big part of my research has been understanding how those toxic stressors affect health and development of kids and their families, but also how to intervene with families so that kids have the best start in life. And, you know, I, I've worked with the, you know, the most troubled parents and they still want the very best for their kids, you know? So, you know, it's a great place to start. And, uh, and so we often work with parents and, and children and infants under, you know, five years of age. And, and that led us to the ATTACH program. So I can tell you more about that if you like. Okay, we ready for that, Hillary? I'm trying to click okay. on you. Yes, please okay. continue on and tell us how you went from, you know, this this amazing research into the actual application and the and the attached program. Yeah. So one of the things that we discovered, you know, over the years, and not just myself, but other researchers, is the importance of secure parent-child attachment relationships. And one of the things that really struck me when I was looking at this literature, this research years ago, was um, a study that showed that the kind of security or insecurity of attachment that a child has with their parent at one year of age predicts the health of that child 30 years later. Um, you know, whether or not they have died uh, and whether or not they've had uh, any kind of health condition, you know, they're mostly uh, inflammatory health conditions, heart conditions, and that sort of thing. So I was just gobsmacked by that, actually. And we also knew, but we knew that there were if a child is insecurely attached to their caregiver at one year of age, it puts them on a trajectory of higher risk for some mental health problems over their lifespan, challenges in relationships with peers, challenges that in relationships with um, intimate partners as they grow older. Um, but the fact that it impacted health in such a profound way 
physical health 30 years later really uh, really surprised me. So I wanted to do something about that. And uh, so we developed the attached program. We looked at uh, things that we could, we looked at the interventions that existed to promote secure parent-child attachment. And we found that a lot of them were kind of cost prohibitive. They involved, you know, as important and valuable as it, as it is, like infant parent psychotherapy, very expensive, very hard to deliver, you know, very specialized training is required to deliver infant parent psychotherapy. It's known to actually improve parent-infant interaction quality, which is what we wanted. But an agency like Carleen's certainly couldn't, you know, these infant parent psychotherapists, you know, they're psychiatrists with advanced training and stuff. They're so, they're few and far between. And when you do find them, they're, they're so busy and it's extremely expensive to, to keep them uh, in any organization. So we wanted to develop a program that would make sense to deliver in the community with the staff skill set that organizations like Carleen's already has. And so when we had this idea, I don't know, six or seven years ago, it came to Carlene and her team and we talked about, okay, there's a few things we think this should include. And uh, we want to make, we want the, we want to be able to have it so that your agency staff can deliver this program. And it's going to be a shorter program. Some of the other things we saw in the literature is like, you know, 18 months, two years of therapy is what it was taking to actually change uh, these kids from secure, from insecure to secure, or support these families in a way that would promote uh, secure attachment, and that just didn't seem reasonable either. So we looked at the literature and came up with a plan, and um, and that's what attached turned out to be. We decided it could be about ten to twelve weeks. Uh, would be uh, training would take two or three days. Would be uh, the training for team members like that work uh, people that work in uh, Carly's organization. You know they could. We have a social work background or a child life background or a nursing or some kind of psychology background, undergraduate education would be sufficient. We would train them and then they would be able to go on and deliver that program in their organization. And we also decided that we would focus on um, thoughts and feelings, helping parents tune into their child's thoughts and feelings is like the core concept that we focus on week upon week. We also decided that we wouldn't do things like teach parents about attachment. Because it was not about lack of knowledge about attachment that is the problem. It's that parents don't have the, uh, the support to actually take the time to be with their child and actually think about what that little person is thinking or feeling rather than just an extension of themselves or just dealing with their day-to-day -day life when their child's just there. So we, we, we took these elements that we found from the research and we built them all into Attach. And, and lo and behold, it's turned out to be a very effective program. Like I've I've developed other research uh, interventions over my career, mothers of depression, and you know various other groups, teen mothers. I've never seen anything like this. It, it really works. It affects. It doesn't promote secure attachment. We're happy about that. Promotes healthy child development. It um, helps parents. We determined they're more reflective in their interactions with their children. They think about their child's thoughts and feelings more. And, and when they do think about their child's feeling thoughts and feelings more, they're more sensitive and responsive. And that's what you know. Um, fuels the building of healthy brain architecture, those serve and return interactions that uh, we care so much about. So we developed a simple-ish <laughs> intervention that could be delivered to, you know, the standard staffing um, skill set of uh, agencies like Carleen's and, and uh, have been delivering that program ever since and, and keep on doing it. I, I could talk a long, long time, so I should stop. <laughs> but anyway, we're happy about attack. And happy we're delivering it with uh, with Carlene and and her team definitely helped shape the program in the beginning. No, that's that's amazing. I honestly, I'm extremely fascinated by it. Um, I I find it super interesting because I I do know firsthand that parents who 
have to live in in crisis and in trauma response just simply don't always have the capacity to be empathetic or or uh, have the right emotional attachment styles for their kids and so I I hear and feel a lot of what you're describing and, and explaining I think it's amazing that CUPS is able to you know uh, like effectively roll out this program um, which is my perfect pivot to Carlene if you could tell us how did you end up learning about attach and tell us about you know how the um, partnership sort of developed and a bit of like the rollout from your perspective well first and foremost if you uh know Nicole outside this interview she's a go-getter <laughs> she uh she's she's Boxer talk about being community involved. And one of my things that I'm the most impressed about University of Calgary, and in this instance, one of the factories, factory nursing, is, is just that a lot of the research and a lot of the findings that they have is also engaging community with. So it isn't just a great research project with the great findings. It's about trying to make practice different. So that whole you know research practice and policy shift, it's a cycle we're all kind of doing and it's truly valued that everyone has an equal weight in that. So working with Nicole has been a tremendous honor as well. But for me, when, when this was brought up as an idea, it was a natural extension from our current um, education programs. And, and I, I always shy away from saying parent education because it's so much more now than just parent education. And there's caregivers and whoever the two primary caregivers are, are who we want to engage. And that can certainly be beyond parents, but if it's parents, that's great too. But looking to have partnerships that really value how does this make a difference based on what we know now fit our current programming and a trauma-informed approach. And as I said, uh, being Brain Story certified was really about how do we empower these parents to not necessarily feel life is happening to them, but that they have a better understanding of their child how the child's brain develops, their role in that, how they play the best role in enhancing that, all in while mitigating the in often very stressful environments and very time-consuming environments uh, that they live in. And so it was, it really just made sense because we have a, one program called Nurturing Parent that really addresses how your brain develops, what happened to you as an adult in your childhood, how that changed it or affected the trajectory of your life, and then how can you change that for your child if it was head negative roads? Um, and how can we understand those needs? How can you separate yourself from your child, but have ability to do more than bond and think your role is to feed this child, keep it safe and keep it, you know, feeling loved. It's way more than that. The role that they have in actually building this very complicated brain into adulthood is massive. And we really felt strongly that when we presented this, um, it was something they that deeply and emotionally affected uh, many, many, many of our clients and, and participants in the sense where, you know, even understanding what happened to them as a child wasn't their fault, but that they actually could now move into making effective change in, in having, you know, a role, a very strong role in making sure that their children maybe didn't go down a lot of the same roads. So this was a natural extension. So learning all that and then looking at attach, the things, it was a natural fit as a next step of development for a lot of our families. And they verbally said that. Um, and, you know, as much as reflective functioning and, and understanding that your child is a separate being, it sounds simple, but it's not. When you understand that people that have been impacted by trauma and in their childhood, a lot of very 
horrible things have happened to them. It, it does create for some a mindset that life is happening to them. They actually don't have a role in driving the outcome of the life is what they often think and empowering them that they do have that role, that their child is a separate little being and that they need to navigate understanding what that child needs and what they would want in their own self and how that's separate. And I, it's, it's not just as simple as understanding that, but you're changing and empowering and building resiliency in a population that don't really feel they have power and don't really feel they can change the outcome of their lives. And adding to that self-esteem, because I would tell you that most people, by the time they go through a lot of programs, do have great ability, but they don't always know it. So this program was a natural extension to Nurturing Parent to continuously reinforce they do have the power to drive their own life. They are massively, you know, the biggest influence in their child's life, and that that is two separate beings that you can influence. Um, it, it really, we've seen such a positive affect of our caregivers really becoming more proactive versus looking to us for, you know, to, to say what next to do. And I think that's honestly why this program is so important to be applied in practice. And when we, this, this um, research uh, program was done, um, we talked to our staff, we talked to the leader there and, you know, attached staff, Martha and her group were very, very involved. And we decided as a group that we wanted to keep it going um, on our own entity. So to me, that's a perfect example, again, of the, the positive you know, collaboration between research and practice that has to be done more. It really does because these things are very, very effective. They're tested, they're tried, they're shown to be effective. And when we see it in practice and get the added that feedback of our participant feedback, it just, it, it really does change how we design our programs. And we go back to our participants all the time and say, you drove that change. You were the one who said you needed this and that you're benefit from it. So again, it's always that last stage of empowering people to understand they're not passive in their life, they are a driver. Absolutely. Long-winded answer, I know. <laughs> no, no, it, it was, again, you guys are just being very thorough in the explanation of this. And I, I do like fully and fully mean that I think that this program is amazing. Um, and you named a lot of good, positive things that have come from this. I wanted to give you an opportunity though, to name any other successes that have come from uh, having attached at cups or any challenges as well that have, have arose while, you know, at, at the starting point or anything like that while having the program. I'll just jump in and say that, you know, understanding that our participants wouldn't know what reflective functioning is in the beginning of this program, they will often say themselves that they feel they have a much better understanding of reflective functioning and even executive function development. And I mean, that's self-regulation and planning and problem solving and coping skills. Like these are all important skills that often people in trauma are not, they're not just, they don't have development in. So hearing them talk about that and relating that to, I see my son does this and doesn't like that. I didn't know that because it doesn't bother me. And like, it's just, it's amazing to see them take control of the narrative and the action. So I would say, again, that building of you are the driver of your own life and empowerment and through self-esteem makes the difference, particularly with the vast majority of our clients in our family development being women and moms. Um, 
that's it's not a kind world for a single mom. It just isn't. And it's incredibly hard, even as women in general, not to always struggle with self-esteem. But when you are a single mom to one or multiple kids in a low income and not always given the grace of that you have, you are an amazing survivor, um, it's, it's great to see that self-esteem and executive functioning skills grow because that is what's going to change everything. Amazing. And Nicole, did you want to share any um, thoughts on some successes or challenges either with, you know, the implementation specifically of CUPS or at, at all in the process that our audience might be interested in knowing about? Yeah, well, there's a, a lot of things I wanted to comment on what Carlene's been saying. Um, and, you know, and even that you touched on too, Hillary, I just want to also say you mentioned Martha Hart. So she is the, the co-creator of Attach with me and she was my postdoctoral fellow. Uh, you know, when we had this idea, but we'll make sure we get give her credit. And she's been really leading the charge in the delivery of the program uh, at, at Cups and other places too. Um, in terms of successes, like one of the things that really surprised us, and I'm going to touch on a few comments here that you made, Carlene, uh, in, in a different way. One of the things that really surprised us is how low the attrition was. So usually when we do intervention testing, you know, we have a treatment group and a control group, and, you know, that's the standard scientific way of doing things we expect 50% of people to drop out of treatment and control. We kept over 90% of people in the treatment and the control condition. The control condition parents would also get the program at the end, right? And so I think they were hearing positive things about it from the people that were in the program and they would just stick around to, to get it too. Um, but we've never seen anything like this. Uh, so we've been like puzzling for years now, but why is it? Does it persist in being that way? When parents start with attach, they tend to stay for at least 10, 12 weeks. Um, I really like it. And, and so some of those uh, reasons are, I think, relating to what we're doing and the approach we take with Attach, which builds exactly on like what Carly's talking about. In, in the, it, it, it was the next step. When you think of parent education or parent support, um, one of the, and one of the reasons why, you know, we kind of think about what kind of terms should you use? Because when you, when you say parent education or whatever, there's an implication that parents need some education, like there's a deficit there, right? Um, so what's the right term to use? I'm not really sure. But with attach, we never assumed there was a deficit. And we don't assume parents need to know anything. Like this is the strange and different approach that we take that's very rare. But we have this attitude, and I think it's grounded in reality, everybody has this skill everybody can think about other people's thoughts and feelings we're social beings everybody can do that we call that reflective function all right the ability to think about other thoughts and feelings and our own actually you know think about the meta the metacognitive skills everyone has an ability but people that are traumatized and have a lot of stress in their lives aren't there they're reacting and, you know, if you think of the brain basis of what we're trying to do here, people that have had a lot of trauma, a lot of stress, they're working from their amygdala. It's a threat surveillance system. And when you have, and it makes sense, why wouldn't you adapt and say, you know, look at the safety of everyone in your environment before you take time to think about the thoughts and feelings. Who has time for that stuff? It's higher level stuff. You know, you're, you're functioning to actually meet basic needs and uh, address threats as they arise, because that might have been the reality. That, that person who I'm describing say, it's not to say they don't have the ability to think and imagine what other people are thinking and feeling, think about what other people are thinking and feeling, but they just don't practice that all the time because of the way they've raised, been raised or, or what's happening in their lives right now. So we give them this space an hour a week where that's all we do. We talk about what are you thinking and feeling? What's your child thinking and feeling? What are other people in your network thinking and feeling about you know, a given situation? And 
it's quite unbelievable the uh, change that we see in people just when they are given that freedom that that you know I can actually do this I don't have to worry about my environment right now or the threats or, you know that I might need to address but I can just think about this thing. I think it must be there's something about that that's so positive that keeps people coming back and we also like I said we don't you know we don't talk about anything else we don't say oh gosh you need to know about attachment and your child's milestones and you know read and play with your child like peekaboo like all those sort of standard things that parents are kind of inundated with when they have babies you know saying to your baby we don't talk nothing like that do what you do with your baby all we're going to do is talk about thoughts and feelings and so i and i think what has been ending up happening my team and myself like we we look at outcomes around the you know how's parent-child relationship improving is the parent's reflective function improving is the child's development improving is the child most likely to be securely attached we also found by the way that when parents go to this program they have epigenetic biomarkers that show that their stress is decreased their their ability to um and their inflammatory responses are decreased so i could talk a bit more about that later but that's pretty exciting findings but anyway we think that what's happening is that um they're using their prefrontal cortex more, and that's generalizing to other aspects of their life. So not only are we improving their outcomes with their kids, we think, but they show up at appointments because they are thinking and planning and using that impulse control, those features of their prefrontal cortex that just have to be, they're exercised in a one hour a week session. And one of the other things we do is we have the co-parent with them, you know, co-caregiver, whoever that person, whoever that caregiver who comes to the sessions relies on for their support. We invite them to the session too. And so we feel like this, and they learn about reflective function. So we think that that kind of reinforces what the what the caregiver or parent is doing with us in their day-to-day -day life. So we're so they're getting, we hope, opportunities to practice this stuff in a bigger way. So anyway, kind of speaking to building on um, the, the, the kind of parenting supports that are provided in a different way, uh, getting parents to actually practice something that we think is has generalizable positive impacts other parts of their life. And, you know, you had asked um, in one of the questions at some point, you know, how, what have parents said about it and, you know, or the caregivers who have attended the sessions have said about it. And they have very positive feedback for us. But uh, and if you want to check this out, you can go to our attach.teachable.com website. And there's a section called testimonials where we just kind of have been cataloging. And actually, Carlene's testimonial is the very first one. <laughs> because we got testimonials from agency leaders who seem to like this program and, and also the parents or caregivers. But look, listen to this one. It says, it's working to help me think and teach my kids how others think and feel. It's helping with peers at school and with my son. It also helped me work through issues with my son's dad. So, you know, it's like going beyond just that relationship that, um, you know, with the child has, that has been uh, our focus. And there's a whole lot of uh, testimonials like that on, on the webpage. But anyway, I will... Um, maybe stop there and see what other questions you might like to, to focus on here. No, I think I think that's great because as, as you're speaking about this, it does seem to me that like it would naturally build in a way better interpersonal relationship skills. It's just about finding like almost the way in being how much parents and caregivers and those people love these young children. And if it then, you know, sort of mushrooms out to the rest of society, then that's, you know, amazing community building all around so much of what CHCs and all of our work is about but I think that that's absolutely fabulous that it's helping you know people in so many other aspects than just this 
caregiver child relationship in terms of and maybe this is where you can talk a bit more about the you know um the the health benefits that you were seeing that you sort of teased but nicole what would you say to community health centers that are trying to implement this program um, about any of the benefits or, or any other commentary that you have about why it should be implemented yeah that's a great question so i mean i think we're able to say that you know and i actually am having conversations with other agencies all the time and you know we're able to say that this program really seems to work so we have evidence to support its use and we're continuing to work hard in the research that we're doing now to find out ways to improve it, make it more easy for organizations to take this on and have it continue. So, you know, it works and we're committed to making it feasible to deliver in agencies. And I hope that would entice organizations. Um, the, other, the other thing is, I mean, CUPS is a pretty special organization. Uh, and actually, I give so much credit to Carlene and Cups because if we had hadn't had this sort of like open arm kind of attitude from Carlene and her team at the beginning, I don't, I'm not sure if we'd be in the place that we are, you know, because there was this back and forth, there was a willingness to share clients, you know, and I was just an unknown entity really to you, Carlene, at one time, but your interest in research and evidence to support programs and services, you know, gave me this attitude that enabled me to walk in the door and with my team and, and do something that I think has really produced, produced some great results. So. I would love to tell other organizations like be like cups or be open-minded to evidence. And one thing I have heard from some recent conversations actually is that not every organization, maybe you've had difficulties too over time, Carleen, but not every interaction with researchers at universities are is positive. I'm sorry to say. Um, maybe you've had great experiences, Carleen, but I have heard that other community organizations that maybe might have tried to do something with another, with a, a you know, university organization. Um, didn't feel completely engaged or the, that researcher went in, did the research with the clients and then, that, and then the agency didn't get benefit from that. So I feel like it's two-way street. Like we as researchers, if we really truly want to make impact, we have to really be true partners, genuinely care about the work that we do, making an impact on you know, improving the services that the agency cares about delivering in, in some fashion. Um, we need to be really true partners and engaged in the needs of I mean the needs of the community organization. So I think us researchers have to go to organizations that way. I'd love to say that um, more organizations are like Carlene's, but I think that there's more researchers out there that have that genuine care. There's gonna be more recipro reciprocity from community organizations, pardon me, that currently don't um, have the time, interest, or maybe bad experiences with the uh, with research. We need more. But if we're going to be improving and ensuring that services that are delivered to our most at-risk clients in society are optimal, we have to work together. So uh, I, I think there's a, a variety of solutions to that. And I have tried to tackle that some of my other work, but uh, I'd love to hear what Carlene has to say about that too. Have you had some bad experiences, Carlene? Uh, you know, in all your, maybe you don't name names or anything, but you seem to have a really positive attitude. So I'm kind of wondering about that. Has it I, wouldn't been say, I wouldn't say I've had negative um, experiences, but what I would say is there's been different type of research projects that has happened in site. Um, so some have just come in, did their hours, got their study and left. Um, and you don't really hear a lot. And I think that's part of why there is a bit of reluctance on some entities to, to uh, you know, think, well, you come in and study what we already know. And I've heard things like that. And I think there's a point to it, but I do think, and I, I would challenge and have challenged other nonprofits and other community players to say, uh, you know, this is part of a mutual collaboration. And it's also part of 
us really being clear on expectations, responsibilities, and accountability yeah. on both sides. Um, so it isn't just, you know, if someone's coming in and doing that, then set a set a cap on that and be leave it what it is. They need to do their studies. They need to have access. Uh, but the larger portion of our resources is spent on creating true partnerships with the research entity that will last over a long period of time. So we are very clear that that, that first part is needed, but it's smaller. Our bigger set of limited resources is on that. And so I would I would challenge others that then create your own portfolio of what expectations, responsibilities, and accountabilities look like in a partnership with a research entity um, and find what fits best. It might be trial and error. So I think I truly do think I've always been just a very, very strong believer that if the nonprofit sector continues to do status quo and add small changes based on, you know, reactive need, we're not really going to get truly uphill. And as I've said, with the social conditions we're seeing, I really believe we have to understand the root cause of these. And, and to me, the vast majority of those are trauma-based. So I see it very beneficial in terms of these kind of partnerships. And, you know, when I look at my relationship with, with Karen or, or Martha with, with Hart and the, and the team, they've been patient with us. They've been, you know, it, it, one of the challenges has been, you know, in some cases, it's a, it's kind of um, a little intimidating and, and, you know, some of our staff were reluctant to really, do I know enough to do this? Do I, do I have the credentials to do this? So there was a little bit, uh, it took a little bit of patience and time to get everyone comfortable in being part of this program and to carrying it on after. Um, you know, research and research leaders to some frontline staff are, are intimidating. And so working to make that a comfortable environment, and I think Martha and her team, you know, on site so much, we're incredibly patient and, and really built really good relationships. So again, everything is about trust and relationship, no matter who and what you're trying to do. And, you know, it's one of the reasons that with vulnerable populations, there is so much, you know, reluctance to work with, you know, entities like health and and, and the police and government and, and those kind of things is that trust and relationship is broken. And I think repairing that is critical again to building relationships, but we've had, we built really good relationships and that's why the vast majority of our resources are in those long-term connections because the benefits have been extraordinarily, uh, you know, strong. And I think it has been the time and patience of, of Nicole and Martha and the group that really has allowed us to be comfortable in this realm and feel we have something to bring to the table, particularly the staff, um, and they do, and we see, and the clients do. So there's always been from Nicole's end and, and Martha's end an appreciation of that and a reinforcement of that. So change happens, you know, through the Edgar model fund, you know, knowledge, education, and awareness, but it's actually that reinforcement piece that really delivers change at the community level. And then the only other thing I would say, so I think that was critical um, and they've been, you know, honestly, fantastic to work with. And we've been able to back and forth and say from Nicole saying to me, no, this isn't really working as well as we can to me saying, this is the concern. So we're able to be honest and upfront with each other and really massage that. So that reinforcement was critical, but I will end on a slightly different tone, but it's coming streaming from the same. When these kind of programs are applied in the community, there's nothing more valuable, in my opinion, although I think this program could be universal to parent link centers, to family care networks, to, you know, literally health centers. I think this is really something that can only benefit 
anyone already that's a natural flow to a high volume of vulnerable and non-vulnerable people. But we concentrate on fairly significantly vulnerable people. And when you're able to understand that from a childhood experience, most of us score of our participants scored considerably high. When you're trying to empower and help and build skills to those that have been the most devastated by, um, you know, lack of support and you know trauma events uh, have been high, it's it is the right thing to do to help the most vulnerable. And I am always impressed that Nicole approached one of the most significant organizations in the city that were serving, you know, really a, a very heavy, heavy percentage of, of significantly vulnerable people because helping them changes everything uh, in their life and really empowering them and getting them to understand the world they live in and driving the world they live in is, is so critical um, and so rewarding that they're not being doubly, you know, penalized for the very, you know, challenges that they were born into again and again and again. So empowering them to really make effective change in their lives, to me, is making the greatest change in society. So I've always commended uh, this team on, on, on picking us and delivering to that population. Amazing. And a, a perfect segue, actually, Nicole, I wanted to give you a chance because you're talking about some of that, you know, lowering some of those stressors and some of those findings. And before I start to slowly wrap it up, I wanted a chance um, because I'm interested in that, uh, those statistics and findings as I used to be a science student. Um, so please, if you want to share um, any of the other, you know, benefits that, that are, weren't, aren't just, you know, so obvious. Well, I guess maybe I'll, I'll summarize, but I don't know if there's you could put some resources for people on this podcast link, but uh, you know you can go to attach as I said dot uh, teachable.com to find out you know links to the the papers that have been published. And so as I said, we found it improved parent child attachment security, uh, child development in various areas, even fine motor development, which is interesting. Um, we found improvements in uh, kids' personal social development, so their own their own social skills. We found. It improved parent-child interaction quality, so parents are more sensitive and responsive, providing more serve and return interactions with kids. Uh, um, and it, it's all, there's even trends toward, we think we have a bigger sample to be able to see this, but we see trends toward it reducing parents' likelihood of being depressed uh, over the court from receiving the program. And then finally, as I was starting to say, um, we collected blood, believe it or not, from mothers and babies, and we found that this program down-regulated immune cell gene expression you know, epigenetically so uh, these parents and children who received the program compared to those that didn't were less likely to get have an inflammation or infections or inflammatory disorders, at least in the short term. It's interesting to follow that up. So we're pretty excited about the program. And uh, like I said, I've rarely found anything that seems to work so well. And I even wonder, as I said, if it actually has impacts on their other relationships that we haven't been measuring. And you can find out information about that on the, on the link that I hope you can provide to the website. Yes, it'll it'll be on the bottom and clickable in the description, and I will Great. get everybody to read their their links in just a moment. But um, first, my my second last question um, for Carlene, I'm curious. You know, like these these programs, they're they're so important, and the partnership is important. But obviously, you need a, a place like a community health center where these things can happen. And so, I'm curious for um, you, specifically your community and the clients at Cups Calgary that you serve, that rely on investment from both provincial and federal governments, as well as health decision makers. Um, what, what needs do you see from these people that would be improved by those groups of people um, and your clients in the community? 
what needs like what, what yes, communication? What, it's always the weirdest question to ask but what needs does your client base have that would be improved by provincial and federal government investment I see. So first of all, we always need provincial community investments. <laughs> the public and the private sector is absolutely critical. Um, you know, at the end of the day, what I know to be true, because we have developed our own integrated care tool, and that assesses social and emotional well-being from a one to five, um, from a range, I should say. It assesses economic support, including justice, and it assesses mental and physical well-being. So physical uh you know, health, mental health, and all those spiritual, you know, cultural, all those specific needs to your life. They're very individually assessed. Um, and we know that through different programs, we can see, you know, we can actually monitor movement and, you know, how they're moving from in crisis or vulnerable into stable, resilient, and, and in some cases thriving. So to me, again, if these investments in these kind of programs and in places that are more community-based that often are entry level for individuals that are very vulnerable. Um, and there's lots of them in the city. The Alex Health Center is another one. You know, we have Kindred uh, as counseling. We have Calgary Counseling. We have many, many that have a lot of flow in. And I think it is really important that we do data collection that can really do a here's where they're at and here's what's really going on. So we have universal you know, intake and assessment. And I think that's important because government is never going to be the innovator. They're never going to be the ones that come up with incredibly big change, but it is helpful for them to be aware what's really going on with homelessness, addiction and, and mental health and other social issues. Where is it coming from and how do we put a plug in the river, so to speak, and stop this? And so I do feel there is an openness to having these conversations. And I think we use example from entities like um, uh, research from, or findings I should say from Attach and many of our different programs and from our clinic to say, this is making people more well because they feel empowered. They're controlling their own lives. They're less depression. Uh, they're moving positively forward to get positive supports instead of staying in their comfort zone with some negative supports. Um, so we can track a lot of that and we can show movement towards literally resilience and owning your own life, merging into community and not needing us anymore. And the way our programs generally work is they come through programming and then they go to community, we go to them and then we slip away and they are built on these whole force main communities. So to me, we see that movement with programs like this and we see that empowerment and we see them move away from us and come back and volunteer. In some cases they come back as students to do the practicum. So there is a lot to be said for looking at those three principles of resilience, you know, reducing stress, building supportive relationships and building core life skills. Because that's, if you're not born into a family that taught you that, that's what's gonna build resilience. And these programs, the such programs that attach, absolutely help to reinforce that. And we can support the redu reduction in stress to allow them to really get the most out of these kind of educational experiences. And so it's hand in hand, we create the environment, the staff knowledge, the ability to reduce stress and these programs enhance the learning and empowerment. So I honestly think this is an opportunity to educate and um, influence policy shifts in terms of what gets funded, um, mm -hmm. how we need to be thinking different on a prevention lens to looking at population health. Um, and you know, there's some starts with that with PCNs, but there's more to do and the evidence is there. So part of why I believe so much in, in, in these kind of partnerships 
is we all often know the outcome we see, but we can't prove it. Uh, but evidence is unrefutable, mm -hmm. right? So it's it's incredibly important to combine both. Absolutely. Um, Nicole, I wanted to give you an opportunity to comment on that question in case you you had anything or even on what Carlene said. We usually save that question just for that encouragement about investment in community health centers. But <laughs> obviously, where there's a direct partnership, that investment does help your, you know, your programs continue to impact people. So if you had anything you wanted to add, I want to just give you a, a chance. <laughs> well, when it comes to these kind of uh, psychosocial population health challenges, you know, all the more funding that it goes with organizations, the better. And if, if uh, helping organizations make the case for the value of their programs through evidence is, you know, part of the puzzle. I mean, I think all of us researchers should just get lined up and support community organizations to provide that evidence to enable them to get the funding they need to deliver the programs and services that, that we know work. And, and the other thing I think that, you know, just I guess a, a plug to the health research community in the country is we need to be thinking about ways that are going to make it easier for community health organizations, community health clinics to get involved in research. You know, right now, a lot of the research funding, you can't really, I mean, I've, I've been doing this lately and I don't know, it seems to be working, but I'm getting funding for community organizations that give them money so they can actually be released from their service obligations and actually take part in a, a project and, or maybe you know, delegate their service obligations to someone else because they've got the funding to do so. So there's that funding constraint that organizations are constantly having, um, you know, won't be a problem when it comes to being involved in research. So my plea is to, if you truly want committee health clinics to be engaged in research, the funding um, opportunities need to provide funding for those community health clinic staff to actually be involved. It's not just that, you know, honorary for the, the, the patients or the subjects and studies and the research staff, the community health clinics, their time is, needs to be honored as much as anyone's. And uh, funders need to be considering that if we truly want to improve outcomes for children and families and support organizations like Carleen's to get involved, then we need to actually provide funding for them to do so. That's my last plug. That's my, okay. new, that's my new hobby horse. <laughs> yes. It, apparently it's been catches for some time now. So we full, fully agree. Um, I want to thank you both for being here. And I will ask briefly, I know, Nicole, you said it was attached.teachables.com, correct? Uh, not plural teachable. So just attached.teachable.com. Yeah. Perfect. And was there anything else you wanted to plug in terms of websites, maybe you Calgary or any way else that if anybody wanted to, um, reach out to you about the program or get involved? Well, we, we also have this. Oh, go ahead, Carlene. You go first. Sure. We, we just want to plug that we're, uh, the Alex, myself, and um, vulnerable Macaulay up in Edmonton were part of the national uh, CACH uh, big, big committee with what's called Wolf. And they were recently out in Calgary and did some site tours. Oh. And it was so, so, so meaningful um, and so exciting, I have to admit. And I, I think they got a better understanding of this connection. And so when I was able to reach out and say, could you kind of spread this, this around? We want to see how we can apply this naturally. Because I think this is, in all honesty, a health issue. If we really embrace what health truly means to, to all of us, it's a, about being happy in your life and empowered in your life and having all your needs met with access to what you need when you need it at the right time. So I, I really do compliment them too for being open to constant learning and development. 
Yes, happy to hear about the, uh, the work that all, all of you are doing over in Edmonton, uh, the Alex, and now renamed the Radius, if I, Radius Health. Yes, Borland College is now called Radius, yes, Health. Yes. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yes, and I will be having an episode with them, I believe, in the coming weeks, discussing the name change and some of the work that they've done with CD awesome. National as Trisha's well. Trish is great. Yes. She's great. Um, yes, yeah, so N Nicole, briefly, any other way anyone wants someone to get in contact with you about Attach? Well, yeah, I mean, the attach uh, teachable.com website I talked about is one way to learn about attach, but in the bigger context, this idea of connecting with community and having this synergy between community and academic, academic uh, partners and, and providing best evidence for interventions and programs to support the families affected by diversity and, and violence, that sort of thing. If people would like to know more about our work in that area, which totally aligns what we've been speaking about, you can also check out AVA, AVA training.ca because that's our um, website to do with uh, community university uh, partnerships in addressing these sorts of traumas and, and toxic stressors that affect children and families over their lifespan. So we've got a bigger initiative around that. And, and Carlene is part of that too, in a huge way. And so is Attach. Yes, perfect. Amazing. And then uh, Carlene, uh, the last, last question is just, if anyone wants to learn more about COPS Calgary and the amazing mm -hmm. work that you are doing over there, where would they go? They can go to cupscalgary.com. That's a website, www, of course. Uh, we have a main line that's on that website. They can call. Uh, my direct email is D at cupscalgary.com. Um, I'm pretty flexible and open to talk to anyone within the time frame I have. Uh, <laughs> but I, I truly believe in partnerships, and I always like the connection and being able to, to look at how we can bridge what we do as a community's uh, better and better. So absolutely, there's uh, lots of ways to get a hold of us and to learn more what we want to do. And on a bigger scale, if anyone ever wants a tour of CUPS, we are happy to take people through and uh, break even a bit more. Yes, I mean, <laughs> I definitely think that I am due. And I also certainly hope that of the other, I think, approximate 115 members that we have as part of CATCH, that people hear this episode and that they get interested in attach and interested in the innovation and the partnership here and go and ask the two of you some good questions and start to implement programs like these all the way to uh we go as far as newfoundland the whole other side so hopefully across the whole country um i want to thank both of you for your time today and for uh being on community matters thank you so much for putting all those questions together they were great questions and for pulling this together for us it's oh really God, important. thank you yeah, yeah, thank you so much for bringing attention to this. Thank you for listening to Community Matters, a podcast from the Canadian Association of Community Health Centres. To learn more about our association and the important work of community health centres across Canada, go to www.cachc.ca.